0: Um, Welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan and I'm pastor here. How many of you, this is your first time? Okay, it's not your first time. Okay, good to see you. Welcome everyone. This is your first time. Um, It's absolutely wonderful. We're in a uh, a really neat season as a church community. Our kind of big picture theme for this year is loving community for bold exploration. And as we were really digging into how the Lord would see us walk this journey for the year, we really felt like it was important that we began by understanding what love is. What are we talking about? Before we talk about bold exploration, before we talk about what it means for you and I to be in loving community, what, do, what is love? It's, it's, the, it's the most universally accepted concept, um, but it's also the hardest to define. And so as I was praying about this through December, I really felt like the Lord was inviting us to allow St. John to walk us through his version of Jesus' life. That we would discover there, what does it look like when God pursues us and when we pursue God. And for us to take a season as a community, as we're marching towards Easter Sunday, to really center ourselves on the story of Jesus to observe how does Jesus interact with crowds and individuals, how does Jesus challenge our earthly assumptions about the way in which the world works, to see those heavenly realities, break them up and challenge them and rearrange them, and then to advance his kingdom. And my hope is that by the time that we come to Easter as a community, we're so enraptured in the story of Jesus, we're so saturated with the reality of his love, that when we begin to speak about loving community, there's a, there's a, a desperation for us all to go deep. There's a desperation for all of us to be unified in Christ, uh, to really love one another well, so then we begin this process of looking at bold exploration, we really know where we're going because who, we know where, who we're going there with. And so we've been on this series today. We're going to be in John chapter 8, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And this is kind of um, the main the point that I want to make tonight. Receiving forgiveness from God empowers us to forgive one another. When you and I are in a position to be able to receive forgiveness from God, that empowers us to offer that same forgiveness to those that we're in community with and even beyond. Your friends, your family, co-workers, even strangers. So I want to kind of begin by telling a story of something that happened to me just this week. I, uh, I met an angel this week. I don't know if it's the first time this has ever happened to me. We're told in Scripture that, you know, we may not necessarily know what they look like. But um, every Friday, I go downtown uh, to the Cathedral of St. Luke to participate in Holy Communion. It's kind of a high church liturgical service, and they do it at noon, Monday through Friday. And so it's my ritual to go down there, um, and I usually take about 30 minutes before that service to sit outside in their courtyard uh, and read. So as usual, Friday... I went down there, and I walked into that courtyard, and it's kind of rather narrow, and there's a few little benches, and I saw this this woman, maybe about in her 60s, 70s, she was kind of sitting at the other end where I normally sit, I could tell by the way that she was dressed, and kind of some of her mannerisms, um, that, you know, maybe she's homeless, maybe she seems like she's a little bit out of her mind, so I did what most of us would probably do, and I made sure there was ample distance between her bench and my bench. Can I get a testimony? And I'm not proud of it, but this is where the story's going. You see, so I sit down and I begin to read just in my little nook you know, preparing myself for going in and doing my thing with the Lord. Uh, And she notices me and she walks over and um, she begins to talk to me. She says, what are you reading? Uh, And I'm reading this book called Living Gently in a Violent World, and it's written by Jean Vanier. uh, And the basic premise of the book is how profoundly disabled people can reveal to us the kingdom of God. This is tremendously ironic. So I explained what this book was and she said, would you read it to me? Okay, I can do that, yes, absolutely. So she sat next to me, and by next to me, I mean like next to me, no personal space. Uh, and I began to read this book to her and uh, kind of in the first paragraph, it talked about people with disabilities. She said, oh, I'm, I'm disabled. I said, really? She said, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm bipolar and I have emphysema. And she had a very thick accent. So I said, where, where are you from? She said, oh, I'm from heaven. My name is Raphael, and I'm an angel, and I came here um, with the angel Gabriel, and he's also bipolar. Okay, all right. Um, So I continue to read, and as I'm sitting here reading this book, and this this man who has devoted the past 60 years of his life um, to gathering profoundly disabled people out of institutions, putting them in homes where they're given dignity, um, where the, the love of Christ is kind of ruling these homes... Um, she begins to lean in and she, she, she curls her arm around mine and she leans her head on my shoulder and I'm, and I'm reading this to her um, just feeling a, a very deep sense of conflict um, because I, it was only minutes prior that I recognized what I had been doing kind of from a distance and, and the way that I'd been interacting with her. And so as I'm reading, she starts to, to talk to me and share some of her story and um, she is from heaven, but... Uh, her family is from Argentina and um, her father was abusive and bipolar. her grandmother was psychotic and um, her arm is bionic from here down. Um, the US government put that in. and uh, she's just telling me all of these stories and, and you know I don't know if you've ever um, talked to somebody that's kind of mentally ill, but there's a lot of, uh, very, there's a lot of depth and a lot of understanding of the way the world works, but it's incredibly fractured and kind of put back together in a, in a very odd form and um, so I sat there and I listened and I engaged and I asked her questions and then at one point she says, can I kiss you on the mouth? I smiled and I said, no, no you can't. She said, well, can I kiss you on the, the cheek? And she had like little bristles on her chin and I said, no, that's okay, thank you. She said, well, can I kiss you on your hand? I said, okay, that's all right. So she kissed me on my hand and then she prayed for me both in English and in Spanish and it was this beautiful little prayer. and So it came time to go into the church and to participate in Holy Communion and, and I went in and I was so overwhelmed by this uh, this engagement that I wasn't expecting, that I recognized in myself this, this prejudice that I had initially um, and then choosing to be present in that sort of as a penance and how it had softened my heart and so I went up to one of the altars that has uh, candles on it for prayer and I prayed for her and I lit a candle. And went and sat and just uh, just sit in silence and kind of prepare my own heart um, for the service. And she came in a couple minutes later and began to light all of the candles and and leave the matches inside of all the little candlesticks. So there was a lot of fire and the priest had to go over and kind of take care of it. But um, during Lent, we go through the Stations of the Cross. I don't know if you've ever been to the cathedral, but they have it. Um, up on the walls around the side. So there's, uh, there's seven down one side and seven down the other. And, and the service, we go to each station and the priest um, does a prayer and we read a part of the story and we meditate on it. And I was so struck watching. There was this woman and about six of us and the priest. And she participated. She was right in the middle of us and she didn't take a booklet. But every station, sorry, every station she'd sit there and she'd just stare at the face of Jesus in each of these stations of the cross. And she knew the liturgy by heart. She knew every single prayer. And she prayed along with us. And there was no division uh, between the priest and the people that are probably part of this church and me and this woman who's maybe homeless and, and mentally ill. And we went through this whole process, and I just was transfixed watching her gaze into the face of Jesus. You know, this, this woman that maybe even at some level, when I initially met her, think, well, she's, she's exempt. She's exempt from, maybe she gets into the kingdom of heaven by default, maybe she's not capable, she's not smart enough, she doesn't have the brain power, whatever it is, to be able to really grasp the gospel. But here's this woman just transfixed by the image of Christ. And her being there with us and all of us participating in it together brought down all of these walls of the assumptions of who's in and who's out, who gets it and who doesn't get it. And I had to walk away from that begging forgiveness from God that I was so quickly willing to judge and dismiss one of his precious daughters. And that's what I want us to really talk about tonight because the story that we're engaging with is a story that's not so dissimilar from that. We have, we have a group of religious elite. They know the stories. They know the book. They know the law. And we have uh, a woman who's an outcast, a woman who is, doesn't make the cut. A woman who's not good enough, is not capable, and she's being brought to Jesus in order to test him, to try to trap him. So we're going to be jumping in um, in verse 2 in John chapter 8. But this is kind of the first place that I want to go with this. God exposes and forgives while man judges and condemns. This is incredibly important for us to begin to understand when we're talking about forgiveness. Is that where God exposes the reality of our lives... And then forgives what is exposed. Mankind, when left to our own devices, we only judge and condemn one another. So let's dive in. Verse 2. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. And so these Pharisees have several different agendas. They've caught this woman, and there's this very obscure passage in the Torah that says if a woman is caught in adultery in broad daylight, She's to be brought out into the middle of the village, and she's to be stoned to death. It's a very, there's a very narrow interpretation of what constitutes this, this type of case of adultery. But these Pharisees bring her before Jesus as, as like some sort of case study. You can feel how dispersonal this really is. They're just talking about her almost as if she's not there. Like They're just kind of laying this doubt on the table and saying, okay, teacher, if that's what you really are, what are you going to do in this situation? And it's fascinating because they're trying to catch Jesus in an act of mercy that will get him in trouble. We've seen several times that the Pharisees are present at many of the miracles of Jesus or the conversations that he's having, whether it's the feeding of the 5,000 or Jesus com- um, claiming that he is Yahweh, that he is I am, that he is God incarnate. And they're observing this and there's, there's righteous indignation building up within them because they feel like their way of doing things is being threatened by this new way that's being revealed in this kind of out there rebellious rabbi. So they're trying to find a way to pin something on Jesus. So they put him into this impossible situation. Because when they bring this woman to Jesus and say, should this woman be stoned for what she's doing? If he says yes, he's going to be uh, tagged as a rebel according to the Roman government. Because Judea in that era was uh, a district under Roman rule. And so the way the Romans conquered was they'd come into a new community, they'd say, you can keep your religion, you can keep a lot of your laws, but kind of the ultimate law of the land is going to be our responsibility. So essentially it would be akin to if the Roman government came in and took over our Supreme Court. We still get the district courts, we get to do a civilian court, but the ultimate highest law of the land is going to be Rome. And because of that, Rome reserved the right for capital punishment. The Sanhedrin, the the, the Jewish law courts, they weren't allowed to actually condemn someone to die. So even in this, there's a little bit of foreshadowing of what we're going to see in the story of Jesus. So if Jesus is to say, yes, this woman deserves to die, then he becomes a rebel in the eyes of the Roman government. Because he's saying, no, we're supposed to take capital punishment upon ourselves. Now, if Jesus was to say, no, we are not to punish this woman, we're not to stone her, then he is disagreeing with the Torah. He's disagreeing with Moses. And so maybe he's not a rebel in the eyes of the Roman government, but now he's a traitor and a false teacher in the eyes of the Sanhedrin and the Jewish ruling class. And so they're putting him in this impossible situation that he's damned if he says yes, and he's damned if he says no. And so we imagine, what can he possibly do with this sort of situation? So when we're going to jump in again at verse 6. So Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Time and again in the Gospels, we see these impossible situations that mankind, when we're left to our own devices, when we reduce things down to black and white, in and out, right and wrong, we have these very uncreative solutions to the problems that we ourselves create. And time and again, the questions that are being brought to Jesus are, is it like this or is it like that? Is this person in or is this person out? Are we justified or are they justified? And time and again, Jesus provides this third way that passes through the very uncreative options of mankind and shows us a far deeper truth. And so Jesus' third way here is that he's confronting the mutual humanity of both sides of the argument through offering mercy. He's confronting the Pharisaic assumption of how the law is supposed to be interpreted. But he's also confronting in this woman what it means for her to be an adulteress, what it means for her to be caught in sin. And there's two phrases in this little passage that I find fascinating. That first, Jesus bends down and he writes in the ground with his finger. Now people have been arguing and debating about this for several thousand years. What on earth is it that Jesus is writing in the sand? Is there something there where he's showing that he's disinterested in the whole argument at all? Is he giving disrespect to the Pharisees? And maybe some of those are true. But there's this passage in Deuteronomy 9 where it's talking about the tablets, the Ten Commandments being given to Moses, and it talks about how they were inscribed upon by the finger of God, that Yahweh himself reached down from heaven and scratched into the stone the Ten Commandments, the foundation of Jewish law that has expanded and becomes Torah. So I wonder even here, as Jesus is scratching, not into the, the, the law of stone, but into the sand at the feet of this woman, if in some way he's symbolically demonstrating that he is Yahweh, that he is God incarnate. And the law that he brings is not a law written on stone, but it's a law that's written through mercy and relationship. And then secondly, he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And I wonder if that's not some sort of veiled reference to the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. You know, even in English, we have a very similar phrase when we say we're going to throw the book at her. And it means we're going to look for whatever laws or whatever loopholes we can in order to to persecute this person, to hold them down, to diminish them, to get what we want out of them. And perhaps that is what Jesus is extending to them as well. You want to throw the whole Torah at her? you want to throw all 617 laws that we have at her, we'll go right ahead. But you need to examine your own situation first. And I think that's the challenge to all of us in, in Jesus' third way, that when we're stuck in this uncreative understanding of what righteousness is, of what right and wrong is, when we depersonalize other people, when we depersonalize ourselves in order to uphold the rules, we've missed something. And it's in that place that Jesus begins to speak into us acts of mercy, that third way that passes between our options of right and wrong, and in and out, and good and bad. And he leads us to a far deeper truth of our mutual humanity. And I wonder whether it's that Pharisaic mindset of needing everything to be defined, of needing the rules to kind of puff ourselves up, to protect ourselves, to make sure that we're in the right tribe. Or perhaps we have that mindset of the adulteress where we're the ones that have been um, ostracized. We're the ones that don't see our own self-value. We're the ones that find ourselves on the outside. If Jesus is not speaking to both of us simultaneously in this passage, as he offers this third way of mercy that opens us up to recognize our own humanity. Because I think this is the thing that is felt by all of us. If we're going to be honest with ourselves, and I really hope that we want to be honest with ourselves, we recognize that we've all been judged and condemned. We recognize that we've all been privy to a system that didn't work for us, that someone has pointed the finger in our face, that someone else has halted the the development and growth of our story because of something that we have done or because of something that we've not done. But we've all also been the Pharisee. We've used our limited perspective. In fear, we've grasped onto our understanding of the rules, and we've judged somebody else out of that place. And we've condemned them. We've halted their stories in their tracks in order to feel some sort of self-righteousness, to feel like we're the ones that are on the inside, that we're the ones in power. Because we have all felt that, because we've been stuck in this cycle of judgment and condemnation from man to man, we often kind of project that onto God because we assume God is a lot like us, just a little bit bigger, and he carries a bigger stick. And so we fear the judgment of God in our lives because we've experienced the counterfeit of judgment at the hands of the people that we claim to be in community with. And this leads you and I to this fear of exposure that if we were honest, that we if we were to open up about the things that we struggle with, if we were to open up about the things that we've done or that we've said, or the things that have been done to us or the things that have been said to us, if we were to open up and, and express those things to God and to other people, we would be smashed for it. We'd be made small. We'd be made shameful. And so often that fear of exposure when you and I bury our sin deep down within, leads us to a form of self-hatred. That we know that it's there, but we don't want to know that it's there. And so if we keep it unspoken, then maybe we can protect ourselves from having to come face to face with the reality of our lives. And not only that, but we're going to launch out preemptive strikes against other people. It's astounding to me how often they go hand in hand, self-hatred and self-righteousness. If I'm not willing to confront my own self-hatred, it's very natural for me to project out the thing that I do not want to see within myself and begin to judge other people by those standards that I'm afraid of being judged against. And we get stuck in this cycle of violence, of judgment and condemnation. We play the Pharisee and we also play the adulteress. But Jesus reveals in this story God's heart of compassion a heart that challenges the pharisaic mindset, that we're the ones on the inside, that we've got it all together, that we know who's in and who's out. But it also challenges the adulterous mindset, that we're not good enough, that we don't deserve to be in relationship with God. We don't deserve to be in relationship with the community around us. This third way of Jesus that reveals God's heart of compassion opens all of us up to this new revelation of mercy that draws us all together into his story. And the beauty of this this story that Jesus welcomes us into through forgiveness is that forgiveness kind of becomes this point, this moment, this sense of release that leads us into a new chapter. And so God exposes and forgives where man judges and condemns. Then God challenges us to accountability and new life on the other side of forgiveness. That forgiveness is this moment, but it invites us into this new way of living. Let's continue reading um, in John 8 with verse 10. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. These amazing two phrases from Jesus. He says, neither do I condemn you. The one man who actually has every right, and he said this several times before in the Gospel of John, I have every right to judge you, but I'm not going to do it. He has every right to condemn this woman, and he chooses not to do it. So when he says, neither do I condemn you, he's forgiving this woman of her sin. He's opening up her story to a new opportunity and hope for growth. But the other part of that is he says, go now and leave your life of sin. And this, of course, is the call to accountability, the call to fellowship with God and with one another. Go and leave your life of sin. It's God's mercy that meets you where you are today. But it's God's grace that does not leave you there, that invites you into a new life, that invites you on a new path, that begins to transform you and rearrange all the bits of who you are to align you in ever greater measure with the kingdom of God. And so it's grace that empowers us to change and to be transformed. And I've spoken many times before about this idea of God's sovereignty in our community. We believe God's sovereignty is the fact that he turns curses into blessings. God's sovereignty is not that you are a puppet on a string and he's already determined every little move you're going to make, he'll be watching you. That's a sting reference. (laughs) Did I tell you guys the sting joke that I wrote? This is a brief little aside, just to kind of loosen it up. Um, In one song, police singer Sting uh, says with every move he makes, he'll be watching us. But in another song, he says, don't stand so close to me. There's only one conclusion that we can draw from this, that Sting is farsighted. (laughs) Thanks, I'll be here all night. Anyway. That is good. That's real good. Nope. Nope. God's sovereignty is less about us being puppets on a string. And his sovereignty is his ability to turn curses into blessings. God doesn't change the events of your life. God doesn't change the things that happen to me. But his sovereignty means that his his ability to change the outcome of those events. He cannot and will not erase your past as much as you want him to. But his sovereignty is his ability to act in it today, to change the outcome. The things that were meant to proclaim death over you now become life because they've drawn you deeper into his embrace. And he anoints the curses of your past, the terrible things that have happened to you. He even anoints the terrible things that you have done and changes their purpose so that it brings you into new life. This is God's sovereignty. And I love that Jesus finishes up this passage by declaring in another one of those I am Yahweh statements, I am the light of the world. And this has been a constant theme through the gospel of John. In John chapter 1, in the first few verses, he says that Jesus was the light of all mankind. In John 3.21, it says, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly what they've done has been done in the sight of God. And we've looked at Jesus as the bread of life. We've looked at Jesus as the living water. We have this this other I am statement to gather into this picture of Jesus that says, I am the light of the world. And what does he mean? It's the radiance of God. Jesus is what God looks like. You want to know what God looks like? He looks like Jesus. He always has. We didn't always get it. But it's the light of God that shines into the darkness and reveals to us what's really going on. And this is the place where so many of us fear the judgment of God because we believe that when we're exposed before him, for some reason he's going to condemn us because we've believed in the counterfeit God. We've believed in the God that looks a little bit more like our abusive stepfather. We believe in the God a little bit more who looks like the angry fire and brimstone preacher. We believe in the God who looks a little bit more like the U.S. government. We believe in the God that looks like all of these earthly authorities that speak of judgment and condemnation. But Jesus, as the light, number one, reveals to us what God really looks like, and number two, begins that process of exposing to us our material realities so that he can begin to work in that and turn curses into blessings. Friends, we don't have to be afraid of being exposed By the light of Christ. Because he's going to show us what's been hidden in the darkness. That you and I, before we encountered the light of Christ, were bumping around in the dark. I've said this several times. I think nine times out of ten, you and I sin, not because of our willful spite, but because of our ignorance. This is why Jesus on the cross says, Father God, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. They're still in the dark. You and I are still in the dark when we hurt other people, when we hurt ourselves, when we hurt God. Most, more often than not, it's not because we intended to do it. It's because we were ignorant. It's because we were in the dark. And so the light of Christ shines into our hearts, shines into all of the nooks and the crannies where we've hidden things for so long because we're so ashamed. And it's the light of Christ that enables us to see what's really going on there. And then God beckons us, won't you hand that to me? Won't, won't, won't you name that thing? Won't you bring that thing into the light? Give it to me. Let me do something with it. Let me change it. Let me get those obstructions out of your way so you can become who I'm calling you to be. Towards the end of scripture, we have these three beautiful letters that come out of one of the communities that John established in southern Turkey. And in 1 John chapter 1, they write this, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And I know y'all got distracted by the last part of that because you're thinking of that song, uh, by newsboys. <laughs> but if we walk in the light, focus, we, we know it. That's the beauty of song, right? We know a lot more scripture than we thought we did. But listen, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, as God is in the light, as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So when you and I experience the light of Christ and enter into fellowship with God, enter into relationship with him, It draws us into relationship with one another because we don't go on this journey alone. Our Christian faith is not in a vacuum, but we're intimately bound to the people that are around us. One of the points of growth that I've been meditating on recently is to say, do I choose my community or is my community chosen for me? Who's making the decision? Is it me or is God choosing my community that I'm to live in and using that for my redemption? They go on. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. You and I have the option, because God loves us, to continue to choose to walk in the darkness. You and I because of our free will, have the option to choose ignorance and to ignore the light and to avoid the light. Because we're ashamed that our sin will be exposed. And sometimes we want to deny that sin is even there. And other times we want to kind of make excuses for sin and say, well, it's all been taken care of, so I don't really have to deal with it. It was all nailed to the cross. But what we're finding here in this passage from 1 John That it was integral to this community, they understood that we are to be in constant openness before God and one another in confession of our sin. Because our sin no longer condemns us, because our sin no longer defines us. That we're allowed, we're, we're allowed to stop being afraid of recognizing it and admitting to it because God is able to do something with it now. And so you and I, we experience the grace of the light of Christ in our lives, that we call that conviction. That he reveals to us what's really going on in our own hearts. And then our response is a response of confession. To give flesh to the thing. To speak it out. To give it a name so that we can actually deal with it. And to choose into repentance. And God's response to that is what sometimes we call sanctification. Our being purified. That God is seeping out of us all of our sinful and human nature. And this is the place where we have fellowship with God and one another, that God begins to use each of us in this room to reflect, his life in, to reflect his light into the lives of those around us. But here is a hard truth, friends. Abiding in the light leads us on a journey to healing and wholeness, but it begins with the pain of exposure. So many of us are pain-averse. As soon as we feel like we're exposed... As soon as we feel like we're being convicted, we name it condemnation and we run far from it because we've grown up in a culture that says you're not supposed to feel pain. You're not supposed to feel sadness. You're not supposed to be embarrassed. God would never do that. So you're supposed to run away from it. And we rob ourselves of the opportunity to be in deeper relationship with God, to allow him to deal with these chronic sin issues that we have. And it eventually holds us back from relationship with him. And it holds us back from relationship with one another. But the invitation is for you and I to trust that even in the pain of exposure, in the place of feeling embarrassed or humiliated, that God takes us by the hand and by his grace, walks us that third way to genuine healing. And we find on the other side of it this glorious new life that he's promised us. Several years ago, when I began working at the church in Nashville, I was leading this community house. There's about 15 to 30 of us, and we were kind of gearing up eventually to become um, a church plant, and I really loved it. It was an amazing opportunity to invest in a group of people for a long time, to stick around. But, you know, one time, uh, my pastor, Josh, came to the group and, and was kind of listening to what I had to say, and we met up afterwards, and he called me out, and he said, you have a major case of spiritual pride. And I went, <laughs> What? How dare you, as we do. How dare you call me out for spiritual pride. I've sacrificed everything for these people. I've given over everything I am. And he said, you surround yourself with people that know less than you, and you take pride in it, and you define yourself by it. And it was a punch to the gut. And I, my fists immediately went up to try to defend myself, to defend that, that I was in the right, that I was doing the right thing. But what I realized as I took that home and began to meditate on it is that embarrassment, that humiliation was because the light of Christ shone a little too close to one of my idols, a little too close to one of my deadly sins. And it triggered something within me that made me want to run the other way. And it was a spiritual discipline to allow myself to walk through that process with God, even though it hurt, even though it was embarrassing, even though it was humiliating. And to see what God was going to do in it. It's the mercy of God that meets us where we're at right now. But it's grace that empowers us to transformation. And so we want to take a moment in the middle of this message to pause. And just to to have a moment to contemplate the idea that we are being welcomed into forgiveness. So I want to invite you to stand with me. We're just going to take about four or five minutes to sit in this for a moment. But I'm going to pray an ancient liturgical prayer of confession and forgiveness. And I want you just to be open and vulnerable before the Lord, to open up your heart to receive the light of Christ, and to see what it is that he might want to show you that's sitting in there. Maybe it's something that you've been aware of. Maybe it's something that you don't want to admit is truly there. But I'm going to pray, and together as the body, we're going to worship. And we've got people in the back, some of our our leaders, some people that are uh, dedicated to being part of this community and they want to pray forgiveness over you. And if you feel like the Lord is naming one of those things that are being brought into the light, I want to invite you to step back there in an act of faithfulness to God, in an act of fidelity to community and to allow them to lay hands on you, to pray over you and to lead you into new forgiveness. So let's pray. Most merciful Father, we we confess to you that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us. That we we may walk in your will and delight in your ways. To the glory of your name. Amen. So I invite you to go and to receive prayer for forgiveness as we worship. Be a people who are afraid of your light shining in our lives. We don't want to be a people who operate according to how we feel in a moment, but we want to be able to pursue truth regardless of how we feel. So, Lord, I speak against any any spirit of fear or humiliation that would keep us back from you. Lord, teach us how to trust that you are good and wherever you want to lead us is good by definition. We want to abide in your light. We want to be on this journey to healing and wholeness. Teach us how to trust you on that journey. We would see so much fruit of being willing to say yes to you when you, when you reveal to us the things in our lives that you want us to deal with. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So in the first portion, I wanted us to look at this idea of what it means for us to receive forgiveness from God. What it means for us to be in the the sandals of this adulterous woman and and to be the ones that don't have very much value, to be the ones that are on the outside, who have been ostracized from community because of judgment and condemnation. But now I want us to turn it to to us being in in the shoes of the Pharisees, What does it mean for us, for you and I, to recognize just how much it is that we've been forgiven from so that we can be empowered to forgive others, those who have hurt us? And so forgiveness releases us from what binds us to the past. Forgiveness releases us from what binds us to the past. That it's not just what you and I have done in the past, but it's also what others have done unto us. And so if we are going to be little Pharisees that become little Christs, we need to understand what's going on within our hearts that makes us so judgmental so that we can even release that to the Lord and that we can begin to release those around us. So I want us to talk about unforgiveness. Unforgiveness holds us in the past and turns our hearts from God and from others. What we see in the lives of these Pharisees, like so many that Jesus engages with, is that they're trying to use darkness in order to combat darkness. That they recognize the sin, that someone's doing something wrong according to the law of God, but they're using judgment in order to try to get that thing out of the way. The problem with that when we try to use darkness to combat darkness is that we all lose, When we live out of that place of unforgiveness, and I wonder if that's really what's going on in the hearts of the Pharisees, is they feel a certain amount of threat because the new way of Jesus, whatever God is doing in this radical rabbi, is challenging their authority, is challenging their understanding of how the world works. And it's leading them to this twisted form of unforgiveness that they cannot see that this is God himself standing in front of them and they want to maintain the rules and the regulations. I wonder if they're dealing with unforgiveness. And when you and I struggle with unforgiveness, we hold someone else in the past. We bind someone to a moment. Maybe it's something they said to us, maybe it's something they did to us, maybe it's something they didn't say, maybe it's something that they didn't do. But when you and I live in unforgiveness, we tie that person down into that moment and we do not allow them to continue to move through history, to move through time with us. But the irony of that is that we may be holding someone else to a moment in the past, but we're really doing it to ourselves. That when you and I struggle with forgiveness against a person or a community or a family member, whatever it might be, when we struggle with unforgiveness, we're also binding ourselves to that past moment. And we're not able to grow. We're not able to move through the story. We're not able to create the space where God turns curses into blessings because we want to keep them as curses. And over time, unforgiveness becomes bitterness as it sets in as we continue to hold on tightly to the things that people have said and done against us, over time, that, that those, those tight-fistedness becomes bitterness. And bitterness continuously invents new reasons to keep us living out of past wounds. Bitterness is continually creating new reasons. I found this so many times in my own life, a lot of times even with people within our community where there's been, there's been a miscommunication or something's happened and, and I've held on to unforgiveness for so long that it's become bitterness. And I've bound somebody to a moment. I've written their story for them. And then even when those blockages are removed, we just add in new excuses and new reasons why we can't forgive them, why we can't step back into community, why we can't pursue reconciliation and hope. Because that's what bitterness does in order to keep us in that cycle. We keep inventing new reasons for us to live out of those past wounds. And the scary thing is that we're saying what Jesus accomplished on the cross means nothing in this situation. We're negating the work of the cross when we allow unforgiveness to turn into bitterness because we're saying that doesn't apply to this moment. You, have, you we're saying, God, you have no idea what people have done to me. You have no idea what people have said to me. See, unforgiveness and bitterness give us this counterfeit sense of power that we choose to hold on to those things as sort of these last-ditch efforts to control the narrative, to control the story, and to justify our past. But it's this false sense of power because it doesn't actually do what we think it's doing. It poisons the well. It halts our growth, and it prevents somebody else from growing in their story with God. And the terrible power of unforgiveness and bitterness within ourselves is that no one else can do the freeing for us. I wish, more than anything, I could release some of you from the pain that you carry from your past. I wish that I could do something about your unforgiveness. I wish that I could do something about the bitterness in your heart because I hear it and I see it. But I can't do anything about it. I can't do anything about it. no, one, Neither can anybody else. And it's a futile effort when we continue to put it on the shoulders of other people to work through our forgiveness for us, to, to get us out of cycles of bitterness. It's not going to happen. That has to be something that you work through with the Lord yourself. And so Jesus Forgiving this adulteress opens her story up to move into a new chapter. It gives her hope. And forgiveness, when you and I are able to forgive those that have wronged us in the past, it clears the way so that something else, something more beautiful can be built in its place on the other side. And this is the crazy thing about forgiveness. The feelings don't always go away. Your pain doesn't always go away when you forgive somebody, but your pain and your feelings are not the dictation of whether or not you have actually forgiven somebody. Forgiveness is not a feeling, it is a choice. And forgiveness also does not mean that everything's going to go back to the way that it was. In fact, I promise you that will not happen. Your relationship, the place that has been broken, where you've become hopeless and bitter, it will never go back to the way that it was. But there should always be a hope in forgiveness for reconciliation, for forward movement. And that doesn't mean that friendships are reforged. It doesn't mean that we go back into relationships that were poisonous and even abusive. Forgiveness does not mean that we choose ignorance and pretend like nothing ever happened. But it does free us and free the other person to be able to move forward in our stories. And if at all possible, God's desire for us is reconciliation. I've spoken many times about my own sexual abuse from when I was a young boy. And I had to walk through this season of first of all being able to name the unforgiveness and the bitterness in my own heart but then to be able to to choose into forgiveness for someone that I never ever am going to see again. There's not a chance. I'm never going to see this person ever again. And so the temptation even in that is to say, well, what even is the point of pursuing forgiveness or whatever that is? Like it's all done, it's all in the past, whatever. No, I still had to have that courage that can only come by faith to choose to forgive my abuser for my own sake for my own life, for my own story, so that all the the rapid succession of curses that came out of that moment of being abused could be corrected, and God could begin to turn them into blessings. Not because the event changed. The event will never change. It will always be part of my story. But because the outcome that should have brought death has begun to bring life. It's brought me into a deeper relationship with God. It's been an opportunity for me to invite healing into the lives of other people. So some of you need to forgive people that maybe you're never going to encounter ever again. But what are the implications of pursuing forgiveness when we're in covenant community like we are right now? What are the implications for us choosing to be part of this body in this time, in this space? What are the consequences of you and I coming into this space every Sunday with unforgiveness in our hearts towards somebody else here and we're trying to worship the one God who unites us all? What does that do to us? What does that do to the culture of our community? What does that do to the lifeblood of this church? Forgiveness toward one another frees us into genuine, loving community. We have to begin in forgiveness. So here's three things that I've recognized that have helped me to understand how to step deeper into forgiveness. Number one, to maintain a spirit of humility. That when you acknowledge how much and how dramatically you have been forgiven by God, it's easier for you to extend that to other people. As soon as you forget how much you have been forgiven of, it's a lot easier to begin to judge and condemn other people because they're doing it wrong because they're not in the right tribe. But as when you recognize that you too have been forgiven from so much, it frees you up into real forgiveness of others. Secondly, compassion. To see the offense of the other person as a result of a far deeper pain in their lives. That a lot of times in unforgiveness, we paint the story of the other person and we reduce them to a single phrase or a character in a story and we don't allow them their humanity. And it's easier to paint them that way because it gives us a sense of distance. But it's out of that fear of protection that we do so. But the heart of compassion enables us to see the offense of the other person as a result of a deeper pain in their lives and thereby actually binding us closer together with them. I think this is so foundational to the message of Jesus and the community that Jesus creates. Can you have solidarity with those who have hurt you? Can you choose solidarity and fellowship with your enemies? Because Jesus calls us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And thirdly, hope. I've heard it said that forgiveness is letting go of the hope for a better past. That we, we hold so tightly to these things that are in the story that we wish would change, but they're not going to. And we need to learn to mourn our pasts. We live in a culture that does not allow us to grieve or mourn. We're just supposed to put on a winning face, pretend like things never happened, and move forward. And in the meantime, our souls are crying out in pain, and we're being stretched thin through our own histories. But we need to learn to mourn the things that have happened to us, because they're real. They really happened. They've dramatically shifted our stories. But we need to mourn and grieve those things so that we can leave them behind. And then, by the grace of God, we can seek to change the outcome of those things in the present moment by choosing forgiveness. And the present moment forgiveness is guided by the hope of future. Of what we see of what the kingdom of God looks like when it fully comes. And how that speaks back into the moment today and guides our ability to forgive one another. You know, one of my deepest pains as the pastor of this church for three and a half years, has been seeing how often our community has been ripped apart by unforgiveness and bitterness. How can we love the city of Orlando if we cannot love ourselves? And it's so hard for me to feel powerless to be able to do anything about it. But I realize that's not my job. My job is not to forgive you. My job is not to do it for you. My job is to create an atmosphere where we can all meet Jesus as he truly is, that we can be in that same place as the adulteress. that we can be in the same place as those Pharisees, and we can look into the sweet eyes of Christ and to receive forgiveness for all of our sin so that we, in turn, can move outward and forgive those around us. And it's when you and I begin to really walk in forgiveness of one another, when we pursue the hope of reconciliation with each other, when we choose the covenant of being God's family over and above all of our woundedness, that we can become the loving community that I know God's calling us to. So let's stand. And in that first moment, we were asking the Lord, Lord, what are the things in my own heart that I need forgiveness from? And now I want us to kind of flip it around. And for us to to open and expose ourselves before the Lord and to say, Lord, who are the people in my life, in this community, that I need to forgive? Who are the people in this community that I'm tying them back to some moment in the past because of something they've said to me or something they've done, because of something they didn't say, because of something they didn't do, whatever it is. Who are the people in this community that I have bound to a moment in time and I have not allowed them to move forward into the present? But in recognizing that, I realize that I, too, am stuck in the past, that I can't accept the present moment as the gift that it really is. And so we're going to worship together. And I want to invite you, if you have other things that you want to confess and seek forgiveness from, you can go, go into the back and allow these brothers and sisters to lay hands on you and pray for you. But if God gives you a face or a name of someone in this community that you need to forgive, I also want to invite you to go into the path and go into the back, allow them to lay hands on you, and to pray that you would be empowered to have courage that comes by faith to pursue reconciliation this week, that we need to deal with this thing. But I believe that when we do, the new life that God's going to afford us on the other side will be something absolutely phenomenal. So let's pray and worship and pray over one another. Lord, I thank you that according to your mercy, you meet us wherever we're at, but your grace does not leave us there. Your grace takes us by the hand and moves us into new life. Your grace moves us into a new chapter. Your forgiveness enables us to move past a moment in our story, to move past the moment in the story of others, and to choose to see what it means when the light of Christ guides us. Father, we are sorry for the moments that we have tied other people that we proclaim to love to a moment in the past. Because of our unforgiveness, our bitterness, Lord, that we have sowed discord within this community. That we are responsible because of our unforgiveness, because of our bitterness, we are responsible for the cracks. We are responsible for pulling this community apart. We confess those things to you, Lord. We repent. We come back to you. We believe that you are the God that turns curses into blessings. You are the God that does not change the events of the past, but changes the outcome of those things. We believe that reconciliation is possible. We believe that we can have hope again. We believe that we can move forward into your future with confidence that wherever you lead us and whoever you're calling us to be, it will be good. So, Father, send your spirit to minister to each of your dear ones here tonight. We give you permission to move in us and through us, to set us free, to set us free from unforgiveness, to set us free from bitterness, so we can pursue hope again. We pray these things in the strong, the beautiful, and the blessed name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us worship.